Hey everyone, Pastor Matt here. You are listening to the official podcast of the Evangelical Free Church of Canton. Our prayer is that the Word of God would both transform you and equip you to live a life unleashed for the glory of God. Our desire is that this content would not be a substitute for your regular gathering with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Instead, that it would be a supplemental boost to encourage you as you seek to follow Jesus. Thanks for listening. Now grab your Bible and let's jump into Scripture together. Today, before I go to the main text, I I just want to pause a minute because we're going to start seeing more in these last few chapters of Peter talk to the church about suffering. And the reason I want to pause before we talk about that is because you and I really don't have an accurate understanding of suffering for the sake of Christ. Truly, none of us here have faced persecution like what Peter is preparing the church for here. And realistically, what many believers around the world face every single day. And I would encourage you, if you ever want more insight on that, uh, there is a website called the Esther Project that goes into details about uh, Christian persecution around the world. Uh, and we just don't have an idea about how many brothers and sisters in Christ risk everything they have for this Jesus that we talk about. Um, we just don't have a concept of how many brothers and sisters in Christ... Uh, will travel miles to grab a plastic-wrapped Bible out of the crevice of a mountain in the dark of night to walk back to their village so that they can sit huddled around and hear the Word of God. And when I read the stories like that, I'm deeply humbled because uh, you realize in those moments just how prone to pride and selfishness we are in our Western culture. Um, and how prone we are to look at some things as suffering that really are not suffering. Um, we face reviling. Um, we face slander. Uh, we face trial. Uh, we face frustration in our day. Uh, but... None of us has truly faced suffering. And, and as we step back and we think about that, I want to start off with just a couple of questions for us to wrestle with. And I'm going to start with them and I'm going to end with them. And they're, they're really simply this. Uh, are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to suffer? And not, here, here's, here's the thing. Not be inconvenienced. Uh, not be uncomfortable. Uh, not be moved out of where we would normally sit. Okay? In life. But are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? And, and the second question really will help answer the first question. And it's this simple question of, is Jesus enough? And to be honest with you, 
we could probably just put this slide up and walk away today and every one of us would could chew on this all week long and have enough conviction for a long time because the Lord knows I have as I was in my office and sitting in a field and back and forth all week. I just for the longest time, this is all I had written down on my manuscript <laughs> and I'm going, These, this is a heavy question to wrestle with. Uh, because if I'm honest with how we, I live my life today, my answer to those questions is no. No. With how we tend to live in modern day, our answer to that is no. I, um, there's many people who aren't even willing to gather with other believers for the sake of the gospel. Let alone suffer. Uh, there's many of us that are prone to, in our flesh, set God on a back burner and say, when I have time, uh, when I get through this season, uh, I'm very guilty of saying that. Oh, it's just a season. And I appreciate one of our elders once, I was saying that, and one of, one of our elders uh, <laughs> sat down with me and he said, Matt, I want to know, is this a season or is this just how you have set your life right now? <laughs> And I went, oh, that's a hard question. And the reality was, no, it wasn't a season. That was just the excuse I was using. It was, I had ordered my life in such a way that what was really important and really mattered was on the back burner. And what I deemed as important was in the forefront. And so I want to pause here with these questions and, and just go to the Lord in prayer first. Because I recognize that this is heavy. And there's a lot here that we're going to see that encourages and exhorts the church in the way they should go. Not shying away from suffering. But we need to start with, am I even willing? Am I even willing to suffer? What am I willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? And so let's pray. Um, in fact, I'm just going to encourage us to just sit for a moment. And, and be quiet and process that between you and the Lord. And then I'm going to pray and we're going to read this last section of 1 Peter chapter 3. All right? Well, let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, we come to you and Lord, I, I, I just confess, Lord, the, the personal struggle of saying that you are enough. Lord, the challenge of living life in a way that 
uh, as Paul said, everything is lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And Father, I don't, <clears throat> I don't know where each of my brothers and sisters are today, but Lord, I pray that you would help us corporately together be unified under this emphasis that you are enough. Father, we confess that it's easy to become consumed by the things of this world and to become fearful as we see the unraveling of that which we've put our hope in. And so, Lord, I pray that in the midst of that, you would help us to fix our eyes on you, to set our hope on what you have promised, knowing that it won't unravel. I pray that you would set a weight in our hearts that invigorates us to a different way of living, that people would see your church in a different light than who we are. Lord, we confess together that we are really good at walking in our flesh. We don't have to try hard. And all the more, Lord, we, in, in the face of that, <laughs> Lord, the fact that you have been gracious and merciful to us is astounding. And so we pause and give praise to you, Lord, because you have offered us life in Christ. What a gift. And so in the face of all of the challenges that we are staring at as we walk into this place today, Lord, may you help us to just be transparent with where we are. And follow your Spirit's leading to where you are, are drawing us to be. Lord, that our confidence would be in you and you alone. And therefore, our boldness would be in you and in you alone. So, Father, we trust you to use this text to move us from where we are to where you want us to be for your purposes and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Look at verse 13 of chapter 3 in First Peter with me. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, if you get nothing else out of today, I want you to cling to this one statement. If we serve the Lord, be hopeful not fearful. If we serve the Lord, be hopeful. Everyone say hopeful. Be hopeful, not fearful. Now, if you were to go back to near the beginning of our uh, series in First Peter, and we talked about hope being a confident assurance. A confident assurance, really, of who God is and what He has promised. So when we, when we read a statement like this, I, I don't want you to read it through the lens of maybe how the world would read it, which is, uh, we, we generally think of hopeful people as happy people. Well, no, you can be grieving and yet hopeful. Uh, you can be angry and yet hopeful. You can be sad and yet hopeful. N- none of, what is encapsulated in the word hopeful should should have any definer of emotions. But what it should define for us is faith and security. Where do we find those at? And if we serve the Lord, which is what we spent the last few weeks talking about from First Peter 2 up to this point in First Peter 3, that we should live as people who are free, verse 16 of chapter 2, not using our freedom as a cover up for evil but living as servants of God. And that impacts how we live in response to specific groups of people and how we live in response to one another in the church. It absolutely should impact how we respond to what we face from the world around us. And so if we, together as the church, say, we will serve the Lord. Together we will serve the Lord no matter what comes. We will serve Him. Then we should be hopeful, not fearful. And we see Peter exhorting this at the very beginning when he asks this question, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And it's really a rhetorical question of which it's not hard to figure out what answer he is prompting, which would be what? No, there's no one, right? Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Now, the, the, the challenging piece of this is if we're to practically play this out, uh, there's a lot of people who can physically harm us. There's a lot of people who can take what I own uh, that can uh, damage my physical being. There's a lot of people who can wreak chaos on the things of this world. But that's not what Peter's talking about, is it? If you are zealous for what is good, what motivates a person to be zealous for what is good in a biblical sense? It's transformation in Christ. 
If you're zealous for what is good, who is there to harm you? And the implication is no, there, no one. There, no one. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake. You will be what? Blessed. Everyone say blessed. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not generally the avenue towards blessing that I would give counsel to someone to. You want to receive blessing from the Lord, suffer for his sake. Uh, That does not go on a motivational poster very well. Okay? Why is that? Well, because most people, even in a spiritual sense, when we come to the Lord, we come to the Lord because we think he has something that will benefit us. And so we go, well, what do I have to do to reap the benefits of what God has offered? And that's why it's so significant that we say, you can't do anything. You can't earn what he's offered to you. It's so great. And you and I are not so great. (laughs) And yet, by faith, we can believe that what he has offered us through Jesus is true. And if I believe that to be true, and I commit myself to following Jesus and living according to God's way, not my own way, then who is there that can harm me when God is the focus of everything I do? The answer is no one. And it goes even further. Even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Well, who is he talking about here? Well, it wouldn't be difficult for us to realize he's probably talking about those who are causing the suffering to happen. Even if you should suffer, you will be blessed. So have no fear of those who cause the suffering. Or more broadly speaking, we could say the world around that causes the suffering. Have no fear of anything in the midst of that. But instead, everyone say instead. (laughs) That's what but signifies. There's a contrast here. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Now, when we read this section, specifically in verse 15, uh, we generally take the second part of this verse and not the whole of it, especially in context. This falls right in the middle of a whole thought. And the first piece here of don't fear them, but honor Christ the Lord as holy. How, How do we do that? Well, I do that by living in such a way that I believe he is indeed holy. I, I, I do that by recognizing that Jesus is who he said he is and did what he said he would do. And if I have no idea what that is, then that's the starting place for me. If I just think that Jesus was a good guy and can kind of 
state the words that I think I'm supposed to say. Yeah, I believe Jesus existed. Uh, I, I believe Jesus died on the cross. Um, even I believe uh, Jesus rose from the dead. Uh, I pray that we grasp that with its entirety. And yet, it is possible for us to have a running knowledge of these truths and not actually have faith in them at all. Because faith transforms who we are. I cannot truly believe in the name of Jesus to be saved and remain in my sinful state. That's why in John 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, you need to be born again because who you are is separated from God. And yet Jesus gives us life. If I honor Christ the Lord as holy then it means a mental shift in my mind that Jesus is not some counselor that I go to see when my life is in shambles. He is my Lord whom I follow in everything I do. That's what it means to honor the honor Christ the Lord as holy. And it goes back to that original question. Is Jesus enough or not? But the second part of this, always being prepared... To make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And a question that we should wrestle with when we read that is, do people see us as hopeful? Are we seen as hopeful people? And we look at the context of this and Peter writing to the church scattered across Turkey. And we think about all that's happened in biblical history up to this point. Persecution that's happened. People been driven from their homes. People who, for every scope, may have been hiding to worship together, as many brothers and sisters do around the world today. And so, the church that Peter's writing to probably had every reason to be afraid. And they probably had every reason... To allow fear to drive them more than hope. And yet Peter sees it as necessary to say. Suffer for doing what God would have you do. For righteousness sake. And always be ready to share with people why you are so hopeful. Uh, Family, I can't think of a better time in our history than right now. To have a culture of people who say we are going to. Hope in the Lord. We will not be afraid. Chaos is erupting and we're not afraid. Because my hope is not in this world. That's exactly what that statement at the very beginning is. If we serve the Lord, be hopeful, not fearful. Be Hopeful, not fearful. Family, I am concerned that we are more prone to fear as the world fears than to hope as followers of Jesus are called to hope. And most of that is due to the fact that you and I are a lot more prone to discern our truth and how we should respond from this thing than we are from this. 
We're a lot more prone to turn on the TV to see how we should respond to what's happening around the world than we are to sit with the Lord and say, what have you promised and who have you called us to be? And I've (laughs) I've said this for a little while, but one of the more concerning trends that I saw take place was the the birthing of the 24-hour news station. And, and I, I gradually saw visiting people stepping into their homes, and that's what was on in the background. And I go, man, it's no wonder we're so fearful all the time. Because it doesn't take much of that for us to... I mean, you get, you get on social media or the news for even 30 minutes, and you just feel your blood pressure and your anxiety like rise physically in your body. Uh, you read through news articles and headlines and immediately you start going, oh my goodness, there's people over here saying the dollar is going to crash. These people are saying, no, it's not. And these wars are breaking out here and they're talking about wars that are going to possibly happen over here. And all of this is happening here. And then my life's in shambles and my marriage is a mess. And I've got, and, and all of a sudden we go, no wonder we're afraid all the time. Instead of sitting and saying, God is sovereign, nothing surprises him, and none of what's happening right now changes the mission. Absolutely none of it changes what our responsibility is as the church. It stays the same. So we... The call to the church here is to honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that you have. And then he gives <laughs> the how of how you're supposed to defend. Do it with gentleness and respect. You see, we can say, and I see this oftentimes, there are, <clears throat> uh, there are, There are pastors who get up and yell at people and get angry. (laughs) And they call it boldness. And there is people drawn to that. And yet, over and over again in Scripture, there is meant to be an attitude of graciousness, respect, and confident hope in the Lord. That should be who we are. Should, it, should have, it should change the very fabric of our culture. Um, you want to be different for the sake of the gospel. Uh, do this God's way instead of trying to make it up as we go. Uh, it is not possible for us to be seen as hopeful and fearful at the same time. We, we can't. And then to have confidence, verse 16, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Do do we believe that? Uh, And evil there does not mean that you go out and 
you murder someone, evil would be anything that is contrast to the righteousness of God. So that means if I get angry and I yell about something or I fly off the handle and someone reviles me because of that, we deserved it. We deserve to be put in our place. The really humbling thing is when God uses an unbeliever to put you in check. Someone who doesn't know Jesus and they call you out. You talk about humbling. Instead, you and I, as followers of Jesus, are meant to be a people that live in such a way that the only thing people can revile us for is our being more and more like Jesus. Not easy. (laughs) And again, I say, a weighty subject. Now, the last question we have to answer in this text that it answers is, why should the church live this way? Why? And it gives us the answer in the rest of this text. The root of the answer is, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this whole thought is just one big, long thought, okay? Um, We are called to live this way in recognition of the gospel that we proclaim. That is, if we believe Jesus indeed did what he said he did, If we believe that Jesus gave his life, that we could have life and have it abundantly. If we believe that Jesus gave us everything we need in himself. And that even Jesus promises that your needs will be met. Not your wants, but your needs. That's why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, why do you worry about what you're going to wear or what you're going to eat? In in the West family, we... We generally don't even have the thought about that because we've got, at minimum, a week's worth of food in our fridge. So it becomes really hard for us to apply faith in that way. Now, some of you have lived through experiencing not having and the Lord providing. I know those testimonies exist in here. But others of you have never, you've never experienced that. And... So that makes it even harder for us to answer the question, is Jesus enough? Because we've never been in a situation where we've had to say, he's enough. One of the greatest tests of my faith was when Brandon and I were in Haiti several years back. And I encountered a faithful brother in Christ who had not eaten in three days. And he was one of the most hopeful people I I met. And he goes, I'm not worried. The Lord has said in his word, he will provide what I need. And I believe that to be true. He hadn't eaten in three days. And I go, my goodness. If I miss breakfast and lunch, I'm an angry mess. (laughs) And so we don't have a concept of this, which means that we have to work significantly harder to answer the question. Is Jesus enough? Because family, there will come a day, whether it be in our lifetime or generations from now, where people will experience what it looks like to live without. You are not experiencing that today. And it is deeply humbling to sit with the reality that Jesus said it's easier 
for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because a rich man has no need of faith. He has everything he needs in his wealth. Is Jesus enough? Now, this next section is really kind of challenging when it comes to trying to interpret it. But I just want to give you a broad overview of this. Because the heart of this passage is we have no need to fear and we should be hopeful and ready to give an answer for the hope we have. Why? Because Jesus has already been victorious. All right? Jesus has already won. And that's the emphasis of 18. Christ suffered once for sins. He doesn't have to suffer over and over again for your sins. Uh, like the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It, Jesus gave his life that you would have life in him. And whether you see yourself as a righteous person or an unrighteous person, it, it doesn't matter. Jesus gave his life for the sins of all. That we might be brought to God. There is one way. Jesus said that. And it is through himself. At the end of this. It declares that Jesus. Has gone into heaven. Is at the right hand of God. Which is a position of authority. With angels, authorities and powers. Having been subjected to him. There is nothing more powerful. Than the name of Jesus. So. At the end of the day, I want you to grab hold of this reality that there is victory in Christ. He is our hope in life and in death. In all things. But in the middle of this, a lot of people get stuck here because they go, uh, made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Uh, your homework for this week is, if you aren't familiar with this story, to read Genesis chapter 6. And it's what this is referring to. And it really seeks to answer the question, what was the world like before the flood described in Genesis? Describes the evil that was taking place, describes all of that. And all we can discern, family, you can speculate all you want in the midst of this. All we can discern is that the spirits here being spoken of were formerly disobedient spirits or people that existed before the flood happened. That's all we know. That's all we know. And many people take this verse 19 and they, they wrongly assume that Jesus went and preached the gospel to them. It doesn't say that. It says he proclaimed or he preached and that can, that word can mean he announced, he made known, he preached and proclaimed. All, all of them apply. And the question is, what did he proclaim? Well, it doesn't say. Interpretively, based in the context, I would say that he proclaimed his victory over sin and death. Because at the end of this passage, he's gone into heaven and there is all of these things that are subjected to him. He's victorious. He's authoritative. But the notion that somehow in the midst of this, Jesus went, and, and this is where a lot of people get the idea that there will be a second opportunity for those who have died 
without Christ to come to faith. Scripture says that nowhere. Scripture does not say that. In fact, in Hebrews 9, verse 27, it actually says, you die and then comes judgment. That's it. It does not say there's a second chance. In Luke chapter 16, Lazarus and the rich man, it talks about this chasm that is between the rich man and where Lazarus is, and you can't cross between the two. That should bring an urgency to us that there is not in the scripture a second chance for those who die apart from Christ. There is not. Is Jesus enough for us today? Now, the other interesting piece of this that people wrestle with is in verse 20, or uh, in verse 20, 21. Um, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And people go, well, wait a minute. I thought we've talked a lot about the fact that baptism doesn't save you. I want you to look closer. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, so it doesn't cleanse you from sin, but rather as an appeal to God for a good conscience through what? The resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, what saves you? A faith in the fact that Jesus is alive, that he defeated death. And so why is baptism corresponded to this? And honestly, family, I really had not spent a lot of time here, but this is incredible when we stop and we think about this. Brings a whole new theological emphasis and weightiness to why we baptize people. And it, it corresponds back to Noah. Now I'll ask you a question. In the time of Noah, what did the waters that rose up serve as? They were the element of what? Of judgment. And who is it that was spared from the waters of judgment? It was those who entered into the ark. Now I want you to stop and think for a minute the faith it took for Noah to actually obey the Lord and build this massive boat. I also want you to stop and think what First Peter highlights is the patience of God in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. We don't often stop and think about the fact that the whole time the ark is being built was all time for the wickedness that was happening for those people to respond to the Lord. And yet they didn't. So the only people who were spared were the eight people on the ark. Only those who entered in. Now, bring this current day we could see a lot of correlations to the Lord's impending judgment on the earth it's going to happen scripture tells us it's going to happen who is it that is going to be spared from God's judgment on all the earth those who enter in through the one way through Jesus so what's baptism correlate to here? Well, I'm going to tell you what. If you got water baptized and we put you under the water and we didn't bring you back up, guess what's going to happen? Depending on your faith, you may be with Jesus. I don't know. Right? So what's the significance of that? Well, when you come back out of the water... You are saying it is the resurrection of Jesus that spares me from the waters of judgment. 
It is only through him. He is the vessel through which I am spared the judgment of those who deny Christ. It brings a whole new power to that. It's why we practice full immersion baptism in line with Romans 6 and with 1 Peter chapter 3. goes clear back to the flood to say this is what we believe. The resurrection being the greatest proclamation over victory and death. Now, family, in all of this, I know there's a lot here and I want to close us. But this application. I I want us to sit with if God has spared our lives from the waters of judgment in Christ. Then is there anything that I need to fear? And I come back to these questions. Are we willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel? Are we willing to suffer the loss of our earthly home? Are we willing to suffer the loss of financial security? Are we willing to suffer the loss of those we love most on this earth? Is Jesus enough for us? If we serve the Lord, be hopeful, not fearful. I'm going to have the worship team come up, and as they do so, I want to close with this passage out of Hebrews 10. And family, as we get ready to just sing this last song, and consider the, the, what I recognize as a weighty, a weighty subject, The question really becomes for you, is Jesus enough or not? Is following Christ satisfactory enough for you that whatever happens, come what may, I am satisfied with him? Or are you wrestling? And you're the only one who can be honest about this. And it may ebb and flow. Uh, When we go through trial, it builds our faith. Because it reveals just how much we are not in control. And so I want us, as we close, to think about this and to respond accordingly. Some of you need to respond to a prompting of God to follow Jesus. Some of you need to respond to a prompting from God to reorder your life. Because it's out of whack. And others of you need to be reminded of simply what God in Christ has done for you. And be encouraged to keep pressing on towards that which truly matters and truly lasts. Family, I believe there is no greater aim for us as a church than to be completely satisfied in the Lord. The only way we will encounter the suffering that is coming with joy and with hope is to be completely satisfied in the Lord. You want to be prepared for whatever comes in the days ahead. Be completely satisfied in the Lord. And none other. You do that. 
you have nothing to fear. They, people can't do anything to that. So I'm going to ask you to stand, and I want us to read this together. <clears throat> Let's read it out loud. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Father, as we proclaim these truths, may we do so with a joy and a hope looking to Jesus and not to our own way. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that you hold it securely in your hands. So we trust it to you in Jesus' name.